if you are married, and if you are here with the person that you are married to this morning, I would ask that you stand. So if you're married, and you're here with the person you're married to, stand. Hopefully you're standing with that person, otherwise we might have to have some discussions. Um, so if you have been married for less than a year, please be seated. I'm going to come back to you folks in a minute, actually. If you've been married for less than three years, be seated. Five years. Eight years. Ten years. By the way, let's all give a hand to these people. Because statistics show that most divorces happen within the first ten years. So these folks have all crossed that hump, God be praised. All right, if you've been married 15 years or less, uh, please sit. If you have been married 20 years or less, please sit. If you've been married 25 years or less, please sit. This is where I sit. I've been married for 23. If you've been married 30 years or less, please sit. If you've been married 35 years or less, please sit. If you've been married 40 years or less, please sit. 45 years or less, please sit. 50 years or less, please sit. Let's give applause to these folks. 55 years or less, please sit. Is there a disagreement over there how long you've been married? I, I'm wondering, all right. If you've been married 56 years or less, 57, 58, 59. <laughs> There's going to be a discussion in the car on the way home. 60 years. 61. Two. Vimarex, how long? 64 years, and you folks? 63. Six, okay, so Vimarex, stay standing. You folks can sit down, please do. God be praised, 64 years of faithful marriage. All right, now to Cox, if you folks would stand up again, all right? These folks got married how long ago? Four months. Four months. All right, great. They've got you by a little, all right? But maybe you can have a discussion afterwards. And I do want to ask if there's anyone either on staff or somebody who can grab these two couples afterwards, just take a picture. It'd be lovely to post that onto our Facebook page this week in terms of God's, God's plan for marriage and how he might navigate that with us. Thank you both for, for, um, for teaching us and showing us what that looks like. So... What I guess and what I expect is that the Vimarics would have some advice for the Decocks. There's some encouragement that they could give. I also know that marriage, that for some of you, and in this context, I know that to be true, this is a challenging topic. Because you either want to be married and are not, and it's not happening for whatever reason, or you have been married and that's ended, either painfully through divorce or painfully through death. That for many of you, your marriage is a trial and a challenge. That for many of you, there are lots of unanswered questions. And you're possibly even coming here this morning with a marriage in crisis. 
And for us to understand that as a community, because we can applaud, and we should, when somebody stands and tells us that they've been seeing God's faithfulness work itself out in their relationship for 64 years, we should applaud that. We should celebrate that. But we also have to understand of the challenge of marriage and how in our culture, being married for 64 years is a challenging undertaking and even more importantly, being married well for 64 years is an incredibly challenging undertaking. And if we're going to think about that, for us to think about that in light of what God's plan and purpose is for his design of marriage is really important. So let's dive together into God's word from one of the more famous marriage texts. And there's already some of you who, as you open this text, see some words in there that you're already curious about, concerned about, and wondering what I'm going to say about. That's okay. We're going to begin by reading simply verse 21. Let's read that together. If you have your Bibles open, let's say it together. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So as we begin this text from Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church and he's trying to talk to them about what their marriages should look like. Ephesus is a Greek community where marriage doesn't look like what Paul is describing oftentimes. Marriage is marriage that is professional, something that is for advantage. It's for financial purposes. Marriage is oftentimes for convenience. You get married in order to have um, uh, uh, look good on one side, but it allows you then to behave however you want in secret. Um, in and a lot of uh, what we would call cultic practices of worshiping Greek gods and some other things that were going on in the Ephesian community, all that stuff is speaking against God's design for marriage. So Paul is trying to write to a group of people about how to do this well and how to live outside of cultural norms for marriage and into God's plan for marriage. And he begins the conversation by talking about mutual submission. And I very much want to encourage us to think about our marriages from the first step in terms of mutual submission. My wife's name is Kristen, for some of you who may not know that. And Kristen and I have to, are called to, are designed to live into a relationship where both of us put the other before ourselves. We are called to show our partner love in a way that is for their sake and not for our own. And Paul wants to frame the discussion about marriage in that way because it's incredibly, incredibly important to the rest of what he is going to say next. He's calling believers to live out selflessness and mutual submission. And when relationships are framed by putting the other before yourself and both people do that, the relationship is marked with something extraordinary. And unfortunately, that explains much of the marriage crisis that we have in our culture. Because oftentimes, when people in our culture enter into marriage, 
They enter into marriage for the purpose of getting what they want out of it, right? We want the pleasure of love and romantic love. We want the pleasure of having um, simple companionship. We want the pleasure of sexual fulfillment. And oftentimes, that's the primary fuel that people have when they enter into marriage. And the result is that when some of those things don't seem to work out, when the romantic love doesn't fulfill you, in the way that you expected to. When the companionship is wrought with conflict and the challenge of one person being selfish or both people being selfish and that selfishness coming into conflict, when that ultimately ends, oftentimes within the first 10 years of marriage, people say, okay, time's up. I'm not gonna do this anymore. And this is the phrase that is so often used and I've heard it and as soon as I hear this phrase, it starts to give me concern and pause if I hear somebody say, I just wanna be happy, right? Because when we start saying those words in our marriage, we're making our marriage about us. I, as I hear this phrase, it starts to give me concern and pause if I hear somebody say, I just want to be happy, right? Because when we start saying those words in our marriage, we're making our marriage about us. I want to be happy. And those of you 64 years, they're going to tell you that not all of it was happy, Right? I hope and I pray that most, if not all of it, was filled with joy. Because joy is a radically different concept than happiness. And if our culture could embrace the idea of pursuing a joyful marriage, joyful marriage is actually something that happens despite pain, despite hurt, despite challenge, despite conflict. Happiness is damaged by all those things. So for us to pursue relationships of joy begins with this idea of mutual submission. Putting the other before ourselves. Now, one thing, that's other, one thing that's important here as well, and you'll, if you look specifically at that verse, verse 21, you're going to see it ends with this. Out of reverence for Christ. So this passage from Ephesians chapter 5 is specifically about Christian marriages. That's important for us to hear. Because we can define, we can clarify, we can stand on the ground of what a Christian marriage should look like. But we also have to then understand that the world that we live in, which is not Christian doesn't hold to these same definitions. They're not living in the governance of what is said here. And oftentimes, we try to speak Christian language into a non-Christian conversation. So our goal then is to bring Christ in. We're going to talk about how to do that. That's really important. Let's continue And right now, there's a whole bunch of people who are concerned. (laughs) Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I have a question. Is there any of you in your marriage vows or in your marriage ceremony who distinctly instructed the pastor not to use those words submit? Is there anyone who did that? Okay, there's one. I've had more than a couple in my office. They do not want use those words used because we in our culture have this idea of what submission is. And part of the challenge is, is that we have a history here, right? You think about the culture of the last, let's say, 100, 200, even four, 500 years. Oftentimes, this passage, this idea of wives submitting to husbands was used not as headship, but lordship. What a man says goes. That the husband is the one who makes all the decisions, who makes all the, who has all the say, and a wife who submits then is quiet and demure and accepts it all without argument. That's the history. I don't think actually that's the design for submission. It's not even close to it. And so when we hear this word submission, we're coming with that history in mind. And there's also cultural stigmas. We live in a world, and certainly we know that conversation right now, as we well should. The idea of women's empowerment, of culture and business and political power structures and whatever organizations or institutions making way for women to be able to live into their fulfillment and to the completeness of who they are in their being which is an important and necessary and completely valid idea. But when we bring that into this conversation, oftentimes people will believe that if a wife submits, then all of that is at risk. All those things that we're talking about with, with women's empowerment. Again, I think that that's not true. And we'll walk that through here because we have to ask the question, what is submission? And what is it not? It's interesting, oftentimes when I preach, I wonder whether or not you're listening. And when it's really, really quiet, I can tell you're wondering what's coming next. I think this is one of those moments. What is submission? What is it not? Well, Let me think about it with you this way. One of the relationships that we all have is this idea of submitting to the authorities, right? All of us are called to submit to the authorities. So our culture or our police officers or our legal system says that there are things that we are supposed to live to and we are supposed to submit to those things. And those things, by and large, are for the benefit of us who would submit to them. They are things that help us flourish. If we all were to speed when we were on the roads, there would be many more accidents and many more deaths. And the idea is that our, the people who have set those, the authority in place, says to us that for your safety and for your benefit, we will set laws in place that you should submit to. If you don't submit to, there is going to be a problem. But, If you'll notice how we submit to authorities, does it mean we do so silently and without question? Of course not. 
It's one of the reasons why in our Senate and our Congress, laws are changed all the time. Why? Because there's interaction between the citizenry and the authorities who are in charge. They are called to listen to the words of the citizenry and create laws that are for a greater benefit, to alter laws for the sake of the people who they are calling to submit. Now, um, is our judge here this morning? Is he here? All right, um, Doug, you're a police officer. What is one of the primary things that you are called to do for the people around you? You are called, it's usually on the side of every squad car. You are called to what? Protect and serve. Interesting that that's the word, isn't it? So the authority that we're supposed to submit, a law officer who is the one who has authority over us, is called to what? Protect and serve. What is service? Putting another before yourself. Doug puts his safety at risk for the sake of wolves who he calls to submit. So when we think about submission in terms of wives, wives submit to things not in full and complete quietness. They don't put tape over their mouths and say, you know, in essence, yes, dear. How high, dear? How long, dear? It's not appropriate. That they can interact with the one to whom they are in submission to, expecting that the one that they are submitting to is what? Like Doug is? Serving. Putting them before themselves. Submission is a mutual relationship that, that for the benefit of both... One person says, I am willing to give myself up for you, but keep reading. Hear what happens next. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And what? Gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in this same way. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. But they feed and care for their body just as Christ does does the church. When we talk about husbands... We're talking about, it's the same conversation. This is not, headship is not something of lordship. It's not something where we are saying, what I say goes. In essence, a husband who is living into this best is saying to his wife, what is best for you goes. What is best for us goes. Not me. In fact, I would even indict a lot of our husbands because I know more about that than being a wife. I can speak for who Scott Elgersma is as a husband. That there have been so much of the Elgersma marriage that has been marked, unfortunately, by me saying what I say goes. What I want goes. My needs are more important than yours. 
But what is the phrase from scripture? He gave himself up for her. Christ gave himself up for the church. The best marriages are ones where husbands are saying, I will, I will fall away. Every need that I have will fall away. Every want or desire for your sake. And the, husband, and the wife is doing the same thing. And the wife is saying, you first. I want to bless you first. Let me give you a specific example where husbands can live into this. And where often we miss the mark completely. And I know that this has been a burden in our marriage so often. And that is in spiritual leadership. Because it says this. To present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. And just before that it says, how, wondering how you do that. Cleansing her by washing with the water through what? The word. Primary goal of a husband in terms of serving and giving himself up for his wife is to care for her spiritual relationship with God. And I want to tell you that as a pastor, I know so often husbands have given up that role. I know so many marriages where there is a spiritual strength in the wife but the husband is neglecting his heart and his wife's heart before God. Husbands, your job, one of your primary jobs as a husband and as a, a one flesh mate to your wife is to give your wife every opportunity to discover all of who God has made her to be and that you make a way for her to be in a love relationship with Christ. Deeply and daily. And perhaps that means that you are willing to have devotions together. And I know that there are often many marriages that don't do that. Why? Because you have kids. You have a schedule. There's no time. I'm telling you right now. I'm telling you. That for you as a couple to daily be before God in relationship through prayer and the word is an absolute necessity to having a good marriage. And guess what? I'm preaching to the mirror. It's right here. I'm hearing these for myself because I need this. I need to have devotionals. In fact, my wife and I, and she's not here this morning, so I can say this. She's going to look at her recording. I'm going to get in big trouble, but that's okay. We had a discussion recently about us writing a devotional together for couples. We'd like to do that. In part because I'm having a hard time when I try to find devotionals for couples, finding good devotionals that we can spend time with together around God's word and do some learning about God's design for marriage for us. And perhaps that's something that we could do together to be a blessing to this community and perhaps others. But for a husband to say, this is important, I'm willing to carve time out. I'm willing to stop watching TV. I'm willing to get back from work early. I'm willing to wake up early. I'm willing to do whatever it is that we need to do for the sake of us. Because if we are not doing that, husband's, we're missing the mark in what it means to be the best husband. If we're leaving that to our wives, then we're shirking our responsibilities. 
But you know what, women? You're not off the hook either. Because women, oftentimes, you see that man, look at that man that you're married to right beside you. See his beauty in all its glory. But there are so many who want to change him. Right? Don't you? You want to change him. You don't? God be praised. There are a lot of other folks who do. You want to change how he looks. You want to change what he does. You want to change how he talks. You want to change something about him. And you are in that mode of changing oftentimes. I'll just give you a funny example. Oftentimes I come home and clothes that I really love, really love, are gone. They are gone. I don't know where they went, but they are gone. Because those are also the clothes that every time I put them on, what does Kristen say to me? You're going to wear that? (laughs) And that's been an ongoing discussion in our relationship. For Kristen to allow me to be me and to help me flourish in being me is also her job. And to allow that to happen. And to praise God for who God made me to be. And wives, there's many of you who need to find those things in your husband that instead of changing, you can come to the place of praising God for them. That's a challenge. That's what godly submission comes in. How many of you have been kicked or nudged so far this message? Anyone? I'm curious. I want to do a couple things yet with this this part about husbands. Look at the example that is used for the love of a husband. It's Christ. And friends, what did that love look like? Remember that it looked like a crown of thorns, a spear in the side, pierced hands, pierced feet, six hours on a cross, including death. And if you and I as husbands are going to love our wives, it means we love them with all that we are. And in many ways for us to live into that because it becomes a precursor and actually a learning tool on how we do that in our relationship with Christ. And second, there's this key component of spiritual headship. Loving your wife begins by loving her soul and her spiritual relationship with God. My primary purpose as Kristen's husband is to love who God has made her and help her flourish in being who God has made made her as best as I am able and with all the energy that I can muster. And third, and this is what I wanted to get to because this is really important. Paul's metaphor about husbands loving themselves uses that in the last part of those, those verses, 29 and 30. It's powerful and here's why. It says there, if you read it, it says, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. The problem is, is that we also have a lot of men in this room who don't love themselves, who hate themselves, who don't like who they are. 
because they have listened to something the culture has said about what they should be, and they can't achieve that. They can't have material wealth. They don't have the career flourishment of others. They don't have whatever sort of prowess, athletic or hobby or whatever it is that everyone says they should have, and they feel like less of a man. Oftentimes, women, in order for us to gain the husband that we long for, it's to affirm and allow your husband to flourish in understanding who God has made him to be and for him to love himself. Because if he doesn't love himself, it becomes difficult for him to love God. And if he has difficulty loving God, it's difficult for him to love you. And for wives and husbands, maybe that's one of the conversations this week. Do you love yourself? Do you value who God has made you to be? Because I do. How can I help do that better? Oftentimes, that's one of the challenges. And our culture continues to say that. Look at media oftentimes. Men are often portrayed as bumbling fools. How many family sitcoms do you see where dad is the goofball who messes everything up and the mom is the one who has everything figured out? We hear those messages fairly regular. Of course, there's the message of men have power and all those other sorts of things. But what I'm saying is there's lots of differing messages and oftentimes men don't know what it is that they can do to actually love and value who God has made them to be. Again, I want to highlight this. This is a discussion about Christian marriages. And that's incredibly important in our culture. But I also want to highlight this. Does anybody know what the statistics for Christian marriage divorces are in relation to the culture? They are the same. That's terrifying. Because we've lost the plot oftentimes when it comes to living into Christian marriages and have braced, embraced the view of a cultural idea of marriage so much so that divorces are rife. And of course, I'm not going to have you stand, but the number of divorces in this room is significant. And the amount of pain that has come from those divorces is significant. And the world out there is watching And so when the Christian community wants to take a stand about what marriage is, the world around us looks at us and says, why? You don't really care about marriage any more than we do. The numbers are the same. Your marriages look the same. You have just as many divorces and remarriages as everyone else. Why? Who made you the experts on marriage? Now, we're going to claim God's word did. The problem is, is that we've forgotten what this is and stop living into it. So much so that when the culture looks at us, we're easy to discount. And that's sad. Because 64 years of marriage, not just just a good marriage, I know the Mamarics. Yeah, they're weird, they're bizarre. John's got his chair that he really loves and they talk about it sometimes. But it's a great marriage. And they have blessed many with their marriage. And that's the message that we can speak to the world around us as we live into it and flourish in it. 
And then we have a voice that matters. Then it's not just, here's what we think, even though everything we're saying, most of our community doesn't even practice. We have something to say. We've gained our voice. And guess what? This is also really important. There are lots of young bodies in this room. And they are watching. One of the things that I say to every couple that I'm doing pre-marriage counseling for, when I begin the process, I say, the place where you have learned to be married the most is from your mom and dad. And those people who live into divorce and conflictual relationship with their parents are much more prone to live into divorce, to divorce and conflict. And so for us as Christian couples to live into relationships that can flourish according to God's design, submission, giving of ourselves up for each other, mutual submission, as we live that out and God flourishes our marriage because we're living into his godly design, our teenagers, our young children are watching. They reap the benefit now and they reap the benefit later. It's incredible to me, actually, the power of your marriage on your kids' marriage. I can tell you this as a professional who talks to kids or married couples all the time or engaged couples all the time about what they've learned from their parents. And parents, be intentional now. Don't be afraid to talk to your kids about some of the things that you're learning and growing into and understanding about being a wife, being a husband, being married, because they're going to learn it question is, what are they going to learn? Let's close this passage 31 through 33. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You see then, again, already in 33, this idea of a wife loving a husband as he loves himself, if he doesn't love himself, there's challenges. Now here's one question that I want to ask you, and, and some of you are going to be really confused by this. That's okay. This is, this is part of why it says this is a profound mystery in verse 32. How many of you have read the book of Revelation? There is this image of Christ being prepared for a feast. What kind of feast is it? It's a what? It's a marriage feast. It's a wedding feast. Who is he getting married to? The church. That's one of the reasons why the church is called the bride of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that we as a church are actually being worked out as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as we learn how to love one another, as we see the kingdom of God grow, we're actually creating ourselves or working within ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit to become the, listen to this, mate for God. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? 
as we are living into love and grace and proclaiming the kingdom of God, we are preparing ourselves to be united with Christ for all eternity as his mate. That's what the bride of Christ is. And so for us, as people who are thinking about marriage, to live into that more fully, the mystery of two becoming one, giving up ourselves for the other, giving ourselves to the other, submitting mutually to one another, give, you know, dying to self is a precursor to the ultimate kingdom of God return of Jesus Christ when he comes and he says, you look beautiful, bride. You are my mate. And you've lived into that by already being good husbands and wives to each other. You have prepared yourself well for me. And as we do that, our marriages flourish more. It doesn't mean they're going to be easy. Friends, marriage is never easy. The first thing that's going to happen is when you get married, and this is where the decocks are right now, you learn and realize just how selfish you are before you get married. And you realize that you have to give up a lot of that selfishness. Many of marriages end up with kids. If you wondered if you were selfish before, have kids and find out how selfish you really were. Because your kids demand your selfishness. They demand you to give up your selfishness. Well, then you're also going to have financial crises sometimes. Work crises, sometimes. You're going to have relationship crises. Your families are going to come up in some way, shape, or form. And your mother or your father is going to rear themselves with their ugly head in your life somehow. And all of a sudden, you're going to sound exactly like them. It's going to create conflict. It's going to happen. Marriage is not easy. It takes work. Intentional work. And the problem is that so often within the church, this is what represents you're married. The ring. I'm married. There it is. I am Mr. Elgersma to Mrs. Elgersma. We are married. Instead of marriage being when someone can look at my wife and say, Ask the question, is she flourishing? Am I flourishing? Is our oneness clear to the world around me? Because here's the thing. As that happens, and as we live beyond the ring, and into the hearts and the minds and the lives of our partner, the world notices that too. There are marriages that are in this community that are attractive to the world around, not simply because they've been married for 64 years, but there's life, and there's grace, and there's love, and there's joy. Why? Because there's submission to each other. There's giving up for each other. And in that submission, giving up, something beautiful is created that the world looks at and says, I don't care how anyone else is defining it. I want that. Give me that. If I can have that marriage, I've named them before. I'm going to name them one more time. There was a couple in my life years and years ago. Hilda has since died, but it was Don and Hilda Groon. 
And Don and Hilda were in there. I think I knew, knew them when they were in their 70s. I think Don is now in his 80s or maybe even early 90s. Hilda went to be with Jesus about 15 years ago. But when I would watch their marriage, and it was so fun to watch, there was joy and life and beauty. They were the cute. You ever seen those cute 70-year-old couples who were like so tender and holding hands with each other? She would pinch his butt sometimes. He would, he would call her, he would call her his treasure, his beauty. I want that. But when I, I remember asking Don one time about his marriage, he said it took a lot of work. He said, we were almost divorced once. We almost gave up once. And there are a lot of marriages in here that have almost given up at different times. But it's worth the work because at his 70 years old, I would watch he and his wife and I wanted that badly. And friends, for us to have those sorts of marriages, and I'm speaking to you men now, go home and work. Work at loving your wife. And yes, sometimes it takes work to love her. I get it. But work. Pray for her. Share what God is doing in your life with her. Spend time thinking about how you can grow in your relationship with God together. And wives, give yourself up for him. Allow yourself to put him first. Maybe it's in one or two things a day. And you can name those things. You know what they are. You know what your relationship is. Give yourself up in those two places. Say, I'm going to put him before myself. I'm going to put her before myself. Start with that. But here's the non-negotiable. Tonight before you go to bed, or at some point today, if you haven't already done it, or tomorrow morning, it has to happen before noon tomorrow. The two of you spend time praying together for each other. Welcome God in. And guys, I'm not letting you off the hook because that's on you. It's on you, men. Just say, hey, can we pray together? If she says no, okay, then you pray. Maybe next time she'll say yes. Because sometimes that's part of work. Got to work it out. And as that happens and marriages here flourish, the world around us sees it. I'm sorry, I, I got one more thing that I just, I, I want to share with you. Because I know there are a lot of people in here who are not married and are not going to be married. There's a lot of widows and widowers. There's a lot of um, singles who have simply made a decision um, to not be married, you can still be a great blessing. I, here's something I ask. If you are a widow or a widower today and for the next seven days, I want you to pray for the Decox. Okay? It's a young marriage that needs the blessing of prayer. Pray for the Decox. Pray for a bunch of marriages. I want you, to, you to, to pray for other families that are going through challenges. If you look in the bulletin insert and you see a family that's having, next week there's two baptisms. Find out what those names of those babies are and pray for those marriages that that baby might be in healthy, flourishing home. If there's an illness in a marriage, pray for that marriage that it might walk through that illness in a godly way. You as widows, widowers, singles can bless marriages greatly by doing that. 
Friends, this is a full thing. This is the whole body. We're living into this together, in part because as we live more deeply into it and marriages flourish, our voice becomes stronger in the world around us about what marriage is. I hope and I pray that our divorce rate goes down. I hope and I pray that there are more and more marriages that aren't just good or so-so but great or spectacular because we have allowed God in and his design to transform and change our relationship in such a way that the mystery happens and the two become one. Let's pray. Praise you, God, for who you have made us to be. You've called us to live into mutual submission with one another. And most specifically that in marriage. As husbands give themselves up for their wives. As wives submit to their husbands in a godly way. As we learn more and more what that means and how we understand it in our own relationship. And certainly, Lord, there are some relationships here that we're going to do things. They're going to do things differently. Simply because two people coming together, it looks different in every situation but that we may look into that difference, not only as individual marriages, but as a community, and ask the question, how can we help God flourish there? How can we pray and support? How can we love one another so that when the trials come, which they will, no one ever feels alone. No marriage is ever isolated. No couple is ever on their own. They know, Lord, that the body that is ultimately the mate for Christ, the one you are preparing now, is already doing that in how we care for each other. Lord, this is work that you and you alone can do in us. We ask that you do it today. In Jesus' name, amen.